Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is part two of I Told Me So, Overcoming Self-Deception in Your Walk with Christ. This was delivered in 2017 at the annual Pepperdine Bible Lectures in the Firestone Fieldhouse at Pepperdine University. My hope is that if you didn't get the chance to listen to part one, that you will do so right before you get a chance to listen to this, and it'll provide a little bit of context for you and hopefully make part two a little bit more meaningful to you. But if you can't, then go ahead and jump right in. I think you'll be blessed either way. So God bless you today. I hope this is something that will bless your life. What we're after, what we're after this morning is just simply we want to honor the Lord uh, we want to be as effective as we can be in ministry. Uh, we want our relationships to be whole. And so in order for that to take place, we're going to need to make sure that we're, we ourselves are growing in Christ and that we're operating from a basis of truth. So no matter what we're doing, we want to be people who are truthful. We want to, we want to stand for things that are true. And in order to do that, sometimes uh, we need to discover that we ourselves are actually the biggest obstacle in the way to that taking place. So when we talk about our hearts uh, being something that we want to follow, Jeremiah might disagree with us. He says in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Who can understand it? I, the Lord. That's a key. The Lord understands. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. So the way that we've been operating, the way we've been looking at self-deception is self-deception is when I lie to myself, when it benefits me to do that, all right? So it's when I, when I kind of cut a corner, when I try to convince myself it's not really my fault, uh, it's when I tell myself a lie about you, about me, whatever it is that I need to do in order to benefit from the lie I just told. And sometimes we get to a, a habitual place of doing this to the point that I can't even tell that what I did was lie there. Uh, it becomes an impulse. It becomes a reflex, if you will. Um, and, and so what we're after this today is to change our habits. Uh, we're in a series right now at uh, New Vintage Church where I preach uh, called For Real. And there we're talking about how to change what we actually love. If you want to want a picture of beach ball, uh, fully inflated, and uh, you go to a pool uh, or uh, a beach or something like that, and you take the beach ball and you push it under the water. It naturally wants to go back to the surface. Okay, There's something that that ball wants to do, some direction it wants to go. And what I'm going to suggest is that that's what you actually love. So when you decide that you want to, for instance, at New Year's, say, hey, I'm going to hit the gym. The reason that the gym is empty in March and full in January is because the beach ball has gone back to the top. Because at the time, they loved fitness, but that was not actually what they loved. What they loved was the thought of being skinny. Habits are what actually change you. Information, we're going to talk about this today, does not change you or make you more truthful. Okay, we live, everybody talks about fake news and all that stuff. We don't just live in an era of fake news. Uh, we live in an era in which news is being swapped out for Scripture. And so the first impulse, for instance, of young parents, many of them that I know these days, uh, I am one actually, I guess young-ish still, but I've got young kids, at least one of them. And um, the impulse is when I have a parenting problem, the first place I go is I want to go find out what the latest study says about that. The point of reference, the North Star for ethics has changed. 
And to me, that has been one of the fundamental shifts why uh, the behavior patterns of people has changed, because the, the, the trajectory they follow, the way the beach ball wants to move has changed. But I do also believe that that can be changed, meaning the direction that you want the beach ball to go, or that, you know, where your first proclivity is, where your habits lead you, that which you actually love can be changed through imitation and habits. Um, there are a number of ways we accomplish self-deception. We, I'm going to give, rattle these off super fast. Uh, we looked at five of them yesterday. Number one, attention management. We control what we hear and we see in order to preserve what we want to think. It's like putting your hands over your ears and going, la, 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 la. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. Uh, so I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm going to make sure that I never watch a news channel with an opposing viewpoint. I'm going to make sure uh, that if I really loathe that person, that I'm going to make sure that nothing that would change my mind about that really enters because I so despise them, uh, or I, it benefits me to despise them, so I'm going to keep you from telling me or anybody else from hearing anything that would dispute the narrative I'm trying to spin. Number two, procrastination. I am going to do the right thing, just not today. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. I'll get baptized later. I'll repent later. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm just not going to do it today. Uh, I'll forgive them later. I'll forgive them when I'm ready. I'll forgive. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read my Bible tomorrow. I will do whatever, right? So I'm going to do the right thing. I'm just not going to do it today. And we rarely do do it later. Number three, perspective switching. This is David and Bathsheba. David sees it in a particular way. He sees the world in a particular way, his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba in a particular way, until Nathan flips it around to where he sees it from a different perspective. Um, so we, we talked yesterday about how a lot of times we preachers will see ourselves in a particular way when it benefits us, and then when it benefits us to see ourselves a different way, then we flip it back around. So um, if I sit in a coffee shop day after day after day, sitting down and talking with church members and studying the Bible with people, I see myself as in touch with the flock. When somebody says to me, hey, boy, it must be nice to just sit around and sip coffee all day. All of a sudden now I go, and now I'm hardworking. You have no idea how hard my job is, da 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 right? So I see myself the way that I want to see myself, and then when it benefits me, then I flip it around and see myself differently. Number four, rationalization. We do this all the time. I construct a rational explanation for some belief I actually arrived at another way. Okay? Um, we used the, yesterday the way we read Scripture, the way we interpret verses, can all be done by using rationalization. Um, if you want to go back just with me briefly, attention management, for instance, when you read the scriptures, leads you to, I'm going to read the prophets uh, and, and harp on social justice nonstop, but when we get to Malachi that talks about tithing, I'm going to say, that's the Old Testament, we're not bound by that. <laughs> attention management. Uh, I told you the story yesterday about the girl in a Bible study here at, at Pepperdine when I was a student that said, Jesus never said that. And the re what she meant was, I never read that. And then when I went to the Bible to open it up, she literally stopped me. That's attention management. Rationalization is it being able to explain why, in your mind, it's more right not to do the right thing at that moment or something else. And these can all work, by the way, at the same time. You can manage your attention, rationalize why you're doing it, and procrastinate all at the same time. We're wonderful at this. 
Uh, But we can take, for instance, a passage like God loves a cheerful giver and rationalize why it's not, why it it ought to read the way that we think it ought to read. Uh, Instead of reading it the way that the text speaks to us, which is adjust your attitude, not your gift. You don't give only when you're cheerful. That's not what the text says. What it says in context is if you're giving and you're doing it begrudgingly, adjust your attitude. The Bible never talks about ethics by mood. That's not something the Bible does. Be faithful when you want to be. Um, You know, God loves a cheerful, honest person. I mean, we would laugh if you apply it to any other area, but because of our desire to rationalize why we don't want to give, we begin to reinterpret the Scriptures, and then what we end up doing is what I call smudging the mirror. Uh, The mirror of Scripture, you remember the metaphor that James uses? The Bible is like a mirror, a man who hears the word, goes away and doesn't do what it says. It's like a man who takes a look in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like. What we do is smudge the mirror with poor, self-interested interpretation so that when we look, we see something almost a little bit more like uh, the reverse of Dorian Gray in Oscar Wilde. Um, If you haven't read that book, that book will preach. Preachers, that one's for free. It's short. It's beautiful. Uh, you may remember he goes in and he makes a deal. He wants to look young and youthful. And so he basically sells out, sells his soul, so to speak. But in a part of his home, there's a painting that shows him what he looks like on the inside. And so he can lie to himself about what's going on out here, but the painting tells him the truth about what's going on in here. Uh, there is a way to do it to where you smudge your Bible up so much in the way that you see it uh, through self-deception, that you smudge the mirror, and you don't have anywhere you can go now to figure out what actually is, is happening in here. Number five, resentimenting. That's when I basically, what was great and what I pursued yesterday, uh, I'm going to just say, ah, I didn't want it anyway. It's sour grapes. Uh, it's saying, you know what, I'm better off without her. Um, you know what, hey, the, the, uh, you know, look at all the free time I got now that I don't have to mess with church. Um, you know, my, my life will be better. Uh, I'll have more money. I'll have my Friday nights free now that I don't have him around in my life. Those kinds of things. Resentimenting, taking something that God provided you and just reassessing its value because it serves you to do that. So, what I'm going to suggest to you today is that God sets us free from self-deception as we will use the term get real with him and die to ourselves. Self-deception is something that we all do, and it's something that is toxic to every one of us. It's toxic to every one of us. So we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning working with something I dabbled in yesterday called collusion. Collusion is something uh, that you kind of, uh, that you can see at work in Scripture in different places. Uh, Jonah and the Ninevites is one. Collusion is when uh, I, because of the way that I see you, I begin to act in ways towards you that preserve the way I want to see you. I, for instance, if I think that all millennials are flaky, um, that they are disinterested in spiritual things, that they don't care about truth, and I bring that into the pulpit, what you're going to find is my preaching is going to take a tone that is going to fulfill that prophecy. And because it does, millennials will act in a way that makes me think it all the more. 
which causes me then to preach in a particular way, which causes them to act that way all the more. And back and forth we go. A good example of this from Scripture is Jonah and the Ninevites. What upsets Jonah is not that the Ninevites are evil, but that they repent. He knows they're evil, but he tries to withhold preaching from them to keep them evil. And because he isn't there to say repent, guess what happens? They stay evil. So that Jonah can still feel good about himself, about the fact that he's bailing out on what God told him to do. And so the collusion begins. Collusion is when I view you the way that I need to, so that I can be the me that I want to be in my own eyes. Preachers will look at their elders and they see themselves as the victims of a high control system. And so what ends up happening is because of that, their behavior, it's like uh, it's in the air. You can't see it, but it's an aroma. And it pervades the meetings, it pervades the church buildings, et cetera, et cetera. And what uh, Craig A. Tenelshoff, the one I told you yesterday, the, the, a lot of the, the, the intellectual framework of this comes from his book called I Told Me So, um, it would, would point us to, is that I'm going uh, to view them, for instance, if I'm that preacher, I'm going to view them in the way that I need to, so that I can be the me that I want to be. And if it gets to a certain point, what will end up happening is the second that they act non-controlling, I'm going to react because now I'm not a victim anymore. Um, There's a woman at our church. I'll leave her nameless because some of our people are going to watch these videos. And when we first, uh, she was one of those, those gals who would uh, some of you preachers are going to know what I'm talking about. The, the, the people who hide like in the bushes or something. A Sunday morning, five minutes before church, complete chaos around church for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, coffee's being refilled and uh, all over the place, putting out fires and everything so church can start. And I'm buzzing. I'm clearly like miking up and trying to whiz somewhere. She'd be over in the, the like back corner of the bushes going, good morning, or thanks for saying good morning. Um, upset that I hadn't seen her, stopped what I was doing, and gone up and said hi to her. All right. So now let me just put that one on the table. Now how, based on what you heard yesterday, those of you who were here, and where we're going this morning, this can go two or three or four different ways. Uh, and I've had, by the way, I've had, I, I, I all times have at least one person that way in, in my uh, experience. Um, now, the root issue to them is, what are they thinking? He's aloof. He doesn't care about people. Um, and, and there's a particular way that they view me. If I'm not careful, how do I, how do I imp- intuitively, where do I go? Where does the beach ball float? What kind of person hides in the bushes or something. I mean, like literally, I mean, it would be around the corner. Our lobby is like a postage stamp. It's, there's nothing there. Some of you have been in our lobby. There's nothing there. There's only a couple places to hide in the whole thing. She would hide so that she could do this. All right. Now, what kind of person does that? Oh, she must be pitiful. Oh, she must be this. Oh, she must be that. Right. Now, what else could happen? 
I could stop doing what I'm doing. I could walk over week after week, and I could say, so-and-so, how are you? Tell me all about your week. Meanwhile, service is starting. I'm not in there. I could do that. Another is I could say, I'm just not even going to pay any attention to her. People like that don't deserve my attention. Uh, and then there's all points in between. Now, based on what you heard yesterday, based on what we're kind of just the foundation we laid a little bit today, what would collusion look like? Uh, I ignore her so that I don't feed her neediness, which causes her to be validated in what she says because I'm aloof, I'm not paying any attention to her, which feeds that, which causes her to act out more, which then causes me to go, she's nuts, I don't like her, so therefore I'm going to avoid her. And that means that I do, and so she thinks to herself, oh, well, you know, then, and so this cycle just goes, that's collusion, right? And what, what Tenelshoff and Arbinger Institute were saying um, in those books I mentioned to you yesterday is that that cycle must break. Now, when you get into those kind of collusive cycles, elders and preachers, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, parents, children, that at some point, there has, uh, we have, you get self-deceived to the point that I need you to be dysfunctional so that I can stay that way. And that's how church dysfunction, relational dysfunction, goes on and on. Probably the healthiest way I could think of at the time, I will admit that I initially went, the way the beach ball floated for me was, you know, I just, whatever, you know. <laughs> That's where my impulse went, right? But upon further reflection, what I realized is, first of all, she is this way in part because somebody somewhere convinced her that that's a normal way to behave. Nobody's ever even talked to her about it, probably. Um, and to be fair, five minutes before church, I'm not a great person. Uh, that's why I don't try, I try to do all my, my interaction with the church 20 minutes before church starts. Because right as it's starting, you know, that's when somebody comes up and goes, oh, Tim, Tim, hey, the toilet's overflowed in the men's bathroom. Hey, I mean, we had a fire right before church last Sunday. Literally put out a fire before church started, okay? And so what this gal is saying and her, her, her neediness is not on the top of the agenda all the time, okay? But, so what's the answer? Run her over? Ignore her? That doesn't feel right. So, I said, hey, can I talk to you after church? Yes. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not super great right after church either because my mind is still spinning. So, there's about 10 minutes in a 24-hour period that you, I'm really, really sharp. So, <laughs> but I sit there and, uh, and I sit down and I just go... Why do you think I'm ignoring you? And I listen to her talk. And I go, I'm not ignoring you. So I said, I need you to understand something. I said, there are 400 other people here that all want to say hi to me. You know, there are ministries that need to be done. And so when we're here on Sunday morning, I need you to understand something. It's not that I don't love you. It's not that I don't care about you. But I am not in a, in a frame of mind where saying hi in, in like, you know, kind of scanning the lobby for you so that I can say hi to you is going to be on the top of my mind. It never will be. I just need you to understand that because my mind needs to be here. And so I'm going to ask you to just 
be willing to either go along with that or forgive me for that. And my promise to you is that when I see you, and, and, I, and I gave her some other time, so you know what she started to do? Show up 30 minutes before church. And we say hi all the time. And she hasn't once said, well, hello, Tim, ah, from, the, you know, from, a, from a, you know, a palm tree or something over in the courtyard. And she's, you know, she's doing it. But, okay, so go back to yesterday. We were talking about saying the last 10%. The easy solution is blow her off. Or to say, she's just dysfunctional. I should just get rid of her. I just don't even worry about that. It's unhealthy. Da, da, da. I'm not going to spend 10 minutes on it. Or for my own, because I recognize that in myself. I'd had enough people tell me that over the years. <laughs> I mean, credible people. My spouse has told me that before. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a distracted guy. I've got my sermon packed in here. I've got uh, the order of worship in here. I've got announcements packed in here. I've got all this stuff in here. And so there's, a, you know, I used to have a brain that could hold all that with no problem. It had extra room. I don't have that kind of hard drive space anymore. And so I, I'm focused um, but, I, man, I don't want to be known as a guy that just runs over people. Because if I am, guess what? I'm going to collude with the whole church over time. They're gonna, he's aloof. He doesn't care about people. And when they start to shape that opinion, they're going to watch my behavior, and I'm going to reinforce it, which is going to reinforce theirs, which is going to reinforce mine, which is going to reinforce theirs. And the next thing you know, where are we? So again, go back to the Ninevites. Ninevites continue to sin because Jonah won't preach there because they're sinful, which allows them to continue in sin, which allows Jonah to justify fleeing the assignment to preach there. So just think for a moment. Think about your marriage. Think about the marriages in your church. Think about your relationship with your children. Think about, I got two daughters that share a bedroom. They're masters of collusion. All right? Um, full-scale black belt ninjas at it. And so the way that that happens and the way that we detangle it, we'll turn um, our minds to that here for the rest of our time. <laughs> um, remember yesterday we talked about the mother and the irresponsible teenage son who comes home late all the time. He thinks that she's overbearing, which is, uh, you know, it may be right, may not be right, but he thinks she's overbearing. She thinks he's disrespectful. So even when he comes home on time, she'll note, oh, he just barely made it. You know, of course, you walk through the door right as the clock strikes seven or eight or nine or whatever the curfew was. But he needs her to continue to be overbearing to justify his disrespect. And in the disrespect, right, that validates her being overbearing. Okay? You can apply this to almost any relationship that exists. Are your elders fighting with each other? Are your elders and your preacher fighting with each other? Are your preacher and your church fighting with each other? I guarantee you there's some collusion taking place. Um, it's like a person who justifies not submitting their life to God. And this, the, here's another way that this can happen. I, I teach my students this because half of those kids, they have to take my class. Okay, So it's not like they're in this religion class because... Um, because they, they, they want to be. They have to take one of them, the Christianity and culture class, and so they end up in mine. But a lot of them aren't Christians. And I say, it's easy to, you can actually collude with God. You can create a God in your mind that is one that justifies you not surrendering your life to Him. 
And because he's that way, I don't have to act this way, which causes you to act this way. And I said, the difference with God and you is that he won't collude back. That is a one-way collusion street. And I think the key to breaking the cycle in human relationships is to act more like Jesus. I know that sounds simple. But like with God, God's not going to go, oh, well, if you're not going to do that, then I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to stop loving you then. I'm going to stop reaching out to you then. That's not how God is. And so therefore, his followers should not be that way as well. If you've ever wondered how you can develop acute hatred or despising of someone, this is it. This is the way it's done. I used it yesterday in my one sole political statement, and it was benign, I hope. Trump needs the media. The media needs Trump. It's the most obvious collusionary relationship I can see right now. They need him to continue to be weird and awful in their eyes so that they can write more stories and justify the editorials they write. He needs them to act that way so that he can talk about the conspiracies against him. And if, for one, if, if one day he woke up and t- transformed into a completely different person, I don't know what would happen. It might explode the universe or something because of the, how strong those emotional fields are. Um, in that moment. And so let's carry this over to the church sphere just briefly. Uh, go to Orwell's Animal Farm. Raise your hand if you've read that. Anybody read that? Okay. Well, provides a parable about how we often treat each other uh, in some of these situations. Two pigs, Napoleon and Snowball, vie for leadership, and Napoleon eventually succeeds in exiling Snowball. But Napoleon's leadership doesn't bring prosperity and comfort. When the farm experiences a big setback, it's Snowball's fault, even though Snowball didn't live there anymore. Everybody just starts blaming Snowball. Uh, He becomes a convenient scapegoat for Napoleon so that he can deflect criticism from his own poor leadership. Here's what Orwell writes. He says, whenever anything went wrong, it became usual to attribute it to Snowball. If a window was broken, if a drain was blocked up, someone was certain to say that Snowball had come in in the night and done it. And when the key of the store shed was lost, the whole farm was convinced that Snowball had thrown it down the well. Curiously enough, they went on believing this even after the mislaid key was found under a sack of meal. They kept preserving it even though they knew it was was false. This is what it looks like. And I'm going to say right now, the remedy to self-deception begins with repentance. You know why? Because it's an acknowledgement, I need to change. I, not you, I need to change. The remedy to a judgmental attitude is an understanding of one's own need for spiritual healing, for righteousness, for mercy. The pride that feeds the hypocrisy that Jesus criticizes here, uh, you know, in, in, in the story about taking the log out of one own, one's own eye, uh, is, is, is about humbling ourselves, focusing on the plank in our own eye that begins to set us free from plank eye. Uh, you know, I, there's practical things I could say work hard to try to not say negative things about people because if you do, you're, you're, you at least stop adding charge to, the, to the, those collusionary kind of forces. But I think there's something about the, the basics of just simple truth-telling. And it starts by telling the truth about ourselves. Um, I, I don't want to in any way make light of anybody's personal situation, but I mean, I, I, will, I will sit in a, in, a, in a counseling situation with somebody who's getting ready to get divorced again for the fifth time. 
And in every case, that person who's on marriage four, five, six, one thing's in common is that most of the time, they think it's always the other spouse's fault. That doesn't mean it's all their fault. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is I'm looking to see if this is going to actually move somewhere. I need to see that moment where they understand, at the very least, I don't choose men well. I have not chosen well. Give me that. Give me, give me something that, that says I acknowledge something that might need to change in myself. When I go in to consult with churches that are in dumpster fire mode at the time, um, what I'm looking for out of the elders, the, the, the staff, or whomever, is some acknowledgement that they've messed up. And I don't mean the generic. I, 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 need to, I want them to name it. I know we need to change some things. What things? Specifically, like what, what things? Um, and if it's too surfacey to keep saying the last 10%, as we talked about yesterday, until it comes out. Because until there's the acknowledgement there, they're probably operating under the umbrella of self-deception still. You know, hey, uh, everything would be great, but you know how California is. Californians are just flaky. Well, okay. Saddleback seems to have figured it out. Um, well, that's because they don't preach the gospel. Okay, I guess you can go there if you want to. Um, it's always they. It's never I. It's, it's never I. It's never us. It's always them. There's an obsession with them. They, but not I. Self-deception is a form of fig leaf. It's a way for us to disguise things that we don't want to see or, or have seen. Um, scripture is one great antidote for this. It's one way, again, if we can avoid smudging the mirror and not bring all of that into the Scripture, Scripture will tell us the truth. I mean, I've had so many moments where I'll open up the Bible and, and it will, the scales will drop from my eyes and I recognize, hey, it was me. I'm the problem. <laughs> Message received. You know, it's like when, uh, when David hears the sermon from Nathan, you know, or when Ahab hears the, the, the sermons from Elijah or things like that where you just go, okay, I get it. I get it. I need to change. That's what you're saying. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to change my attitude. Okay. Or I can see how I'm playing a role. Now, for many of us, I, I know it'll be a little bit weird to think about um, how basic this is, and I'm going to bore you to pieces for the, for the last stretch here. Isn't that a great way to introduce what you're getting ready to say? <laughs> but the, the answers to this are so simple. What I encourage my students to do is, first of all, they, you do, a good, do an excellent job unpacking your own family of origin issues. And if you've got deals in your past that really have shaped who you are, uh, in a negative way, meaning if you've got abuse, you've got uh, parent issues, you've got you know, sibling issues or whatever, the more you can work on those, the better off you're going to be. Okay? But beyond that, it really can be as simple as transforming our loves through imitation and practice. Being in proximity to people who are about the same things you are, and by that I don't mean they all golf or they all whatever. I mean they are ruthlessly focused on following Jesus and putting yourself in proximity to them so that you can see what it looks like to pursue the same things and that your pursuit is similar to theirs and that you have people in your life you trust enough that if they were to walk up to you and say something, you would listen. 
one of the things that is really injuring us right now, I think, church-wide, is a, is a uh, relational, and I'll use the term retardation in, in, the, in the medical sense of the term, just a, uh, because of social media, we're, we're connected to a lot of people at a very surfacey level, but we're not very deep with people. And I think building those, uh, whether, it's, whether it's through the small group system, whether it's just making two or three good friends in the church that you just simply say, hey, let's do this thing together. Let's do life together. And you are invited. You have an invitation, a standing invitation to at any point of your concern. I, don't, I would prefer if you didn't just criticize you can tell me when I'm doing something well, too. But you have an open invitation to notice things in my life, in my walk with Christ, and point them out to me and give me ideas on how to change them. Um, so, there, prayer. Remember the idea that we had once where if you actually prayed, God would change things. See, I think one of the best things that, that we can do is humble ourselves enough to actually pray. See, what I found in my own life is that when I lack prayerfulness, it's usually because um, I don't feel the need for it. I don't, uh, and so it's an act of humbling, it's an act of humility to get down on my knees and acknowledge a need for God to change me and to transform me. And so, again, we're back to habits, because what we're trying to do is ultimately change the way the beach ball floats. So instead of it going toward, okay, I'm going to deceive myself, I'm going to do what it takes to benefit myself, the way we want that to go is where it becomes second nature for us to be truthful and honest, and that we're not so dependent on self-approval or the approval of others that we can't handle having the scales fall from our eyes. Um, you remember the story of uh, the Pharisee and the publican, as it used to be called? You got Pharisee on one side, man on the other. Pharisee's prayer, thank you, I'm not like him. That's what he says. He goes, thank you. Thank you, I am not like this man. Okay, <laughs> self-deception. And, by the way, I would, I would probably make the case based on the other things you read in the New Testament, there might be some sort of collusion between sinners and Pharisees. The Pharisees need the sinners to stay the way they are so that they can feel more righteous and maintain their position as teachers of the law. The reason that Jesus is very comfortable around sinners and seeing them come is because he's not out to impress anybody. When you're perfect, what do you got to lose? But he's God himself. He knows what's going on. He doesn't need them to be who he is. And so when you get into a, an environment, and then let me just end maybe uh, as we hit the last two, three uh, minutes here, take this and, and apply it out to the broader churches of Christ. Right now, when I go to gatherings, brotherhood gatherings, what I hear, this is me, okay, I, you may hear different things, but I hear a lot of blaming going on. Uh, it's very data-based, meaning such and such studies of so-and-so say this, which tells me, I mean, that's an easy way to size people up and do it without having to do the work of actually relating to them, right? I can just read about you. And then I can decide what I want to do with you and moving on. But I also hear young people aren't this. Uh, millennials aren't this. The culture is this. And they might be completely right about everything. But the one thing that's missing is the personal pronouns. I, we, here's what we've done. This is how we need to repent. This is how we need to change. 
Uh, we haven't paid enough attention to leadership development. Maybe we haven't treated our preachers very well, and that's why we don't have any anymore. Instead of going, well, preachers aren't committed, what if we said, hey, what, what do we need to do to change what we're doing so that we create a habitat in which they can flourish? Or, or what if we said something about, okay, instead of us making excuses all the time for why our church isn't growing, what if we, what if we simply said, okay, what we have been doing is not being effective right now? And so I'm not, I'm not going to read a book about what we ought to do. I'm going to go look at what other churches are doing, but I'm going to accept responsibility as a church leader. I'm going to accept responsibility for trying to make this better. And I'm going to tell you, the people in churches are not repelled by people who make mistakes. They're repelled by people who lie to themselves and to the church and who won't own stuff. That bothers them. When, when you get up in front of your church and you say something like, hey, you know, here's how I think we need to change. Here's where I think we've gone wrong. And you're authentic about it. And you say the last 10% of it. I mean, those are Christians you're talking to. They're grace people. They really are. Even the mean ones, okay? Underneath. They respond to that. And to be able to get up and say, you know what? I, we feel like we haven't led you well. Here, here's why. You know, we've noticed this and this and this and this. You know, we had an opportunity to do this and we passed on it. At the time, it seemed like the right decision. But now, in hindsight, it was a bad one. Um, and so here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do to make this different. And here's what we're going to do to change. Man, people will love that. They will eat that up. As opposed to sitting there and then Sunday after Sunday as the church dies on the vine, sitting there going, well, you know, the problem is really with millennials. It's them. You know, well, America today isn't the way it used to be. Yeah, well, it's never been the way it used to be. That's the nature of things. It, it changes, right? So you might be right. You might be right about millennials. You might be right about America. You might be right about all that stuff. Just make sure you're right about you too. Just make sure you're right about you. And you're right about your leadership. And so when you're having those tense meetings, man, uh, when, you, when you're in those preacher-elder conflicts, when you're in those deals, just that impulse, that personal pronoun has got to be in there somewhere. I, me, my, we. Not always they, them, culture, America, whatever. Okay? Um, ah, getting close to the end here. Uh, la last thing, just super quick. Uh, and then I want to pray for, for everybody that's in this room. Um, my, my observation is um, that most of the things that are going on in the world today, it's because we have the deception thing on tap. I can be told anything that I want to be told. And I think when Paul tells Timothy about the itching ears that the end times people are going to want to allocate around themselves, I don't know that he's specifically talking about our time and our place. I think it applies to every time and every place. So if I, wanna, if I want somebody to tell me I'm right, not only can I, can I shut off all the alternative views, but I can have that opinion that I need to hear. This is attention management, like we talked about. I can have that one just echoed and reverberated to me over and over and over and over and over again. I can create my own echo chamber. I can create my own playlist of things that goes on and on. I can Pandora my entire life, thumbs up, thumbs down. Everything I read in Scripture, thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up, thumbs down. 
I can read the Bible that way. I can listen to praise music that way. I can worship God that way. I can do all of that. And, man, that's just kill. It's killing our marriages. It's killing our families. And the answer is the same as it's always been. It's the Word of God and the Word made flesh. <laughs> 